All right. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today, I am in Scottsdale, Arizona with my partner and associate, Dar Colburn. Dar, how are you doing? I'm good, Jay. How are you? Doing great. Uh, we had some great feedback on the live podcast episode that we did. The last time we talked live, we were in Sonora, Mexico. I think we were like four days into it. We were on a rain delay. If I remember right, we had just, uh, uh, Lee had just killed that double main bean buck. Um, and Mitchell had just killed that other buck basically from the same set. And the skulls were boiling in the pot. We, we were stuck and it was raining and we decided to do a podcast, kind of catch everybody up to speed on how things were going. Yeah, that sounds about right. And we, I think if, if I remember right, we lost, we lost that, that afternoon. And then didn't we lose the next day also to rain? Yeah. I mean, that's one of those things, you know, and looking forward in this week coming up, we've got scattered rain, you know, 50% chance here and there. So kind of when you're packing for the day, you know, you're going rain gear, no rain gear. I think every day this week coming up, it's going to be rain gear in the pack. Yeah, probably. Um, and you know, that week was the 27th through the fourth. So we were hunting kind of, you know, pre rut, um, we, you know, we didn't see much rut. Uh, actually, the deer uh, were not moving a whole lot. Correct. Um, you know, just had a situation where the deer would would feed in the morning for an hour, and then it seemed like they would be bedded all day. We would see them every once in a while get up and change their shade position. But it was tough. I mean, it was tough. Not a lot of movement. What do you anticipate being different now going down here mid-January uh, as far as movement? Well, we're going to be almost two weeks later, so and we're coming off of a full moon. So I think I think that's going to help us too. I think uh, you know the temperatures have still been a little bit warmer, which we'd like to see it colder. But uh, you know, as the moon's getting darker, I think they'll be up more during the day um, as the rut kicks in um i think those bucks will be moving around more and especially the the more mature deer will be moving where is this you know a couple weeks ago the the bigger deer we saw most of them were not moving much during the day yeah i mean they would they would be in a real tight circle they would be up feeding in the morning but we never saw deer like traveling like more than say 50 yards and they kind of stayed in that circle all day and you know it's full moon i think we're recording this on the 12th and uh, it's a full moon tonight, and then we're going down, you know, a handful of days after that. So the moon will be sliding and, and getting smaller every night. It'll still be pretty big. Yeah. Um, you know, the reports that we're getting are from other people going to Mexico that they're seeing, uh, you know, smaller bucks, you know, nosing around with the does and maybe the bigger bucks right at first light being kind of there, and then they're kind of walking off on their own. And we see that quite often, but then as soon as it really gets hot, it seems like those big bucks will not leave those does. Right. I agree. It, it's kind of like, um, you know, like I'll hang around with the chicks, but okay, I'm, I'm, I just need about an hour and then I'm going to go hang with the boys and just kind of be off on my own and, and rest up type of thing. Sure. 
Sure, sure. What, it's been so long for you? But the, <laughs> I don't even remember the, the those days. The high school, college days are so far removed, you don't even remember Yeah, that, I don't even you? remember those days. It's just a figment of your imagination. <laughs> well, and, and you know, I don't want to jump ahead, but the last day when we, we killed a buck, uh, Hunter was on a buck that he had seen, they had seen in the morning, and that deer, you know, I believe it was like 9.30, bedded down, and that deer stayed bedded till dark. It might have gotten up once or twice to change its bed, you know, turn around and move around for a second and then bed it back down. But that's a perfect example of if you're not looking right there, you will never see that buck. I mean, unless you're specifically looking right there when it stands up, you're not going to see that buck all day. So you have a short window to to find them, and it just makes it for tough, tough hunting. Sorry, I was getting a big old drink of water when you finished there. Absolutely. And I mean, I think for people out there glassing, I think it, I think it's pretty clear that those deer, you can sit there and glass for two or three hours and not see anything. And then all of a sudden they get up Mm -hmm. and there's, you know, 15 deer that you can see from that same spot. So I think it's really easy to be like, oh, there's no deer here and move on. But know that these coos deer, unlike really any other animal that we hunt, they're so finicky and mm-hmm. and it seems like the more mature of a deer they are, the bigger deer that they are, the older deer, they lay down a lot. I take yeah. for instance the third buck that was shot. I probably the day after we did our podcast down there um, mm-hmm. with with Mitchell and Sean, uh, I was up on a high point. We walked into some country, probably a forty minute walk up to this point. You kind of came maybe a mile to the south of me and came up a ridge line, and you're like, Jay, can you clear this little bowl in front of me because I kind of want to horseshoe around there to get out on that. You wanted to walk out that long finger point so you could glass off both sides. Mm-hmm. Well, I had to move just a little bit from where I was, but I scanned it. I didn't see anything. And then you come on the radio, and you're like, I got a buck. He's right there in the in the crest you know in that bowl i mean right where i had looked now whether i just looked across there and didn't see him or maybe he was still bedded yeah he's just, just out of sight or up, something right um it just goes to show i mean with coos deer sometimes just moving you're changing your angle just a little bit even if it's three or four steps over sit down and glass again i mm-hmm. think that's huge because a deer can be just around the corner or you know laying down and all of a sudden they stand up and you see them um the thing that jumps out with me on that buck of Sean's is, so the kind of country, let's say we were at probably 4,000 feet of elevation, maybe a little higher, kind of rolling, kind of kind of big yellow grass ridges. This particular ranch had quite a bit of feed on it, quite a bit of yellow grass. But as that slope in that bowl rolled around out on that point, it was still in the shade. Well, that right. buck... And it had been cold. I oh, mean, it, it was that really was the cold. coldest morning we had. I'll right. bet you it was probably 35 degrees. So we were talking the night before, oh, they're going to be out in on the, the open sun. slopes. And, yeah. yeah. And that buck was right at first light, but he quickly, I mean, within 10 minutes, maybe less, slid right over into the shade. And then you and I were talking, you know, trying to decide if, if Sean wanted to shoot him or not. You know, he was in the shade, mm-hmm. and then he stayed below the shade line... It's yep. funny how they do that mm-hmm. and slinked all the way over. Probably, it's probably the deer we saw move the furthest distance, probably 200 yards. Right. And then he bedded in the shadiest spot, and it's 
first light, it can't be more than 30 minutes after first light, yep. and he slid over there in the in the shade, not on the sunny hill. And I mean, it was cold. Like, I I had my beanie on. Yeah. It was cold. It was our coldest morning. And he bedded down, and he, that thing stayed bedded till you guys, sh- you know, basically shot him. Yeah, and to even to take that one step farther, so it wouldn't have been the day before because that's, I believe, the day we got rained out. So it would have been two days before Hunter and Mike and his son were in there, the same spot I was, looking for, you know, not for that buck, but right. just glassing in that country and didn't see him. Not saying that they missed him, but, I mean, that deer probably wasn't up or he moved around the corner or something. So sometimes I think we take for granted that we're such, you know, proficient with our optics that we glass somewhere and see everything. And I mean, this is two days later and boom, here he is right in the same spot. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's easy with the good optics that we have. And I, I, I will talk about it later, but I switched to those, um, 25 power, um, twin spotter, uh, spotting scopes, Swarovski spotting scopes. I think sometimes we, ha- we're good at what we do and our optics are good. It's easy to be like, I glassed it. There's nothing right. there. It never ceases to amaze me. It seems like every day that I'm chasing coos deer, I get reminded of one, Jay, you're not as good as you think you are. Two, these deer can be right out in plain sight and you can't see them. Yeah. So I don't know where I'm going with that other than just telling people you got to keep glass and you got to pound it. You got to keep moving angles. You got to cross glass if you're hunting with someone, you know, if you're able to use signals or a radio which we use radios a lot, you know, get on opposite points, glass into each other, cross glass, what we call where you're, you're covering some of the same country, but you're looking at it from a different angle. And a lot of times you and I like to get two different, completely opposing angles and be looking perpendicular or, you know, into each other. And it's amazing what sometimes you pick up that I can't see. And then once I tell you, Hey, it's down there by this, you're like, Oh yeah. I yeah. can't believe I didn't see it or, right. or vice versa. Sure. Um, Sean's buck, a real boxy, mature deer. Just a classic, classic deer, white mature clues deer buck. Yep. Yeah. Um, that, that was a nice buck. His first white tail. Yep. Uh, and I believe it was Mitchell's first white tail, Sean, the dad's first white tail and Jared's first white tail or had he already shot one? I think he'd already shot one maybe. Okay. Yeah. So now we've got three deer down. That was a nice hundred, hundred inch type, a little over a hundred type buck. Um, and just beautiful boxy three. When you first saw that deer, you're like, it's a pretty good deer from my distance and the angle. I could just tell it was a buck. I really couldn't tell exactly what he was. Yeah. I had, I had the benefit of being, you know, three or 400 yards from him. Yeah. And, uh, could tell he was a mature buck. Uh, that's a good point. We've got some coos deer up here on the wall. Um, pretty much all of these bucks, there's six coos bucks right here on the wall, right here in front of us. Um, some good memories there. Yeah, we could <laughs> go through each one. Uh, what, when you see a coos buck, what is like the first thing that you go, good buck? Like what what jumps out at you first? When you just pan over and see rack, immediately what catches your eye to be like good buck, and, and I mean I whether it's ninety five or one ten, like 
there's kind of a barrier there of like, sure. okay, this is a good deer. Usually for me, it's the point length and the main beams. Those are the two things that usually you notice right away. I mean, you don't even need your spotting scope when you see one that's 100 inches or we close typically to it or say, over. yeah, that you know. Yeah, you need your spotting scope to find detail and kind of mm-hmm. see exactly what it is and see if it's a 3x3 three three or a 4x4 four four or if there's extra points. But it seems like it doesn't matter how far you are away. If it's a solid 100, yeah. most of the time with 15s at any distance, you can go like that's that's a solid 100. Mm-hmm. I would and, agree. And it immediately like jumps out. And what jumps out at me a lot of times is just the whole package, like like tall wide like you see like a box mm-hmm. whereas you know you get under 100 and you get pencily racked you get short points you get narrow you get maybe wide but short points but when you see like a solid 100 to me it's just like wide tall like yeah. box you see a lot of antler there yeah yeah especially uh, on their small bodies yeah and i think when you get in like 110 or better I think that's where you immediately like see the mass. Yeah. You're like it's a totally different look than like a 95 or 100. That next step up, 110, 115, you, it's mm-hmm. just a lot more bone on the head. Would you agree with that? I would for sure. So Mitchell's or uh, Sean gets his deer. You, Sean, and Mitchell pack that buck out, and you know as the hunt goes on, we go to the last day. And we've still got two tags to fill. We've got um, Jared and we've got Bill. Bill Bertram's hunted with us. This, that was his third year. Kind of tell me from your perspective, you and I kind of went on a nature hike in separate areas trying to find Bill a deer and Hunter and, and some of the other uh, guys. Uh, Lee kind of tagged up and, and tried to find. So how'd that all go down? Yeah, so they... Hunter took Jared and the and the rest of our crew kind of to an area that we had hunted a couple times or glassed a couple times and seen quite a few deer. So being the last day, you know, that was high probability of finding a decent buck to shoot. Um, so that was kind of the game plan. And then you and I went to an area where it just looked like we could turn up a big deer, but maybe not as many deer. And it was tougher. We, we hiked in a long ways. You and I split up. Uh, left Bill kind of closer to the the ranger and uh, took off on a hike. But, you know, it just didn't pan out. Uh, we we both saw deer, just not, not the numbers of deer, kind yeah, of a lower-density area of the ranch. Yeah, and we could hear on the radio from Hunter, we knew that they were, those guys were lined up on a, on a good buck and that the buck had just bedded down and the waiting game started. And I think we decided around 1130 to pull out because our idea was let's glass, let's hike in really far and just try and find a big deer. If not, we'll come out and go to an area where we had seen a handful of bucks. Sure. Um, and Bill's like, yeah, on the last night I would probably shoot one, you know, just, just for meat. And um, so we pulled out the whole time listening to the, you know, Hey, what's your buck doing? He's still bedded. He's yep. still bedded. And that went on all day. I want to say he bedded at like 8.30 or 9 o'clock in the morning. And they I think were he only up. got up twice. Yeah. And and he, when you say he got up, he got up and turned 180 and I think bedded back down. He didn't take any steps or feed or do anything like that. 
And I think that's a good lesson for guys listening out there is a lot of times when these coos bucks are in that pattern, um, you know, kind of what I would say, you know, before the rut when they're going to be pretty stationary, I think it's pretty important to make sure that you have your shooting location where you're actually trying to shoot the buck from in an elevated area where you could actually be shooting down on the deer as opposed to if you're level or down below the deer and there's tall grass, they may get up for maybe 15 seconds, 10 seconds total, you know, very short period of time, just turn around and rebed. If you have a little bit of an elevated perch where you're kind of looking down, you have a little bit more of a margin over the grass, whereas opposed if you're, you're below it and you just see the antlers and then he goes down, you don't see the buck. Sure. Thoughts on that? Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, that bit us the first day. Uh, you glassed up a pretty good buck that actually, I think, winded you or something and went down. You kept an eye on him and he bedded. And I had Sean and Mitchell and we stalked over and, uh, you know, we were, I think it was like 450 from the buck and opted to try and get a little bit closer and, and gave up some elevation to do that. And by the time we got over there, there was no place to get a rest and it was hard to see. So it's like, you know, looking back, the 50 yards was, I mean, I, I would have gladly shot 50 yards farther to be able to set up, have the view, you know, of everything. And, and so, yes, I would agree with you. If you can keep your elevation, it's always good to keep your elevation. You know, that brings me up it reminded me of that deer um that was opening morning and i um was glassing and i kind of had changed i I walked away from my backpack maybe 10 yards to kind of look off this other into this other drainage and i hear this deer snorting at me and kind of wheezing but snorting but it sounded like a i'm like it doesn't sound like a doe a lot more volume to it yeah just like Mm -hmm. and i look down and here's you know just this fire breathing Grumpy dragon down buck. there. Yep. Yeah. I mean, mature, you know, 9,500 inch type, big bodied kind of mature yep. deer, kind of short pointed, but heavy, like mature, but never something that would ever be mm-hmm. a big, a, a over hundred inch type buck, yep. but definitely big body mature. And he's snorting and breathing at, you know, and he kind of runs off down through and then he stops and he, I just sit down cause I was kind of walking with my tripod. And I'm glassing him, and he's just looking up at me, snorting, snorting, snorting. And um, I'll never forget that. And then he finally weaseled around where I think he he was trying to find me, what he smelled. I think he smelled me. And so he bedded out there about six or 700 yards, dead facing me. So he's looking right his back at trail. me, yeah. watching, he made up and went and did a little loop and he's watching his back trail mm-hmm. and I'd see him in his bed and he just like, every once in a while, he just like snort. I could tell he was just <laughs> like all perturbed that he'd smelled me up there and I was able to get a hold of you and you made a big hike up there to, to, to see that deer. That brings up a good point. I mean, you guys were up in that rock pile and you're like, it was a little, it was kind of a nondescript area. It was really hard right. to describe exactly where that deer was to you there was nothing really that we could get yeah, as no landmark. landmarks that we could get in common so you dropped down trying to get a little bit closer because i think you were 450 and like you said maybe you would have taken your chance to stay up high in the rocks sure if he happened to get up in the afternoon or evening and move around maybe he moves you know 100 yards closer to you and you and you shoot him maybe looking back that would have been better but it's always the hard decision 
but I think going back, a good tip when you can keep your elevation, sure, keep the high ground, you know, like a military strategist would say, keep the high ground. Um, that's something that I've learned the hard way over and over and over. Yeah, and I think one thing we should touch on is for, for people that haven't hunted coos deer or just getting into it, most of our shots on these deer, are, I, I would say, are three to 500 yards. If, if if you have someone that's proficient from three to 500, usually that's where the, the yardage is going to be for an opportunity. Can we get closer? Sure, we've, we've shot them closer, but, I mean, you get under 250, 300 yards and your chances of something going wrong is high. We always talk about the book and I'm sure everybody else has their books, but we always say chapter one, page one of the Colburn and Scott Outfitters, how to kill a coos deer book is never get inside 300 yards of a deer you want to kill. And I'm just telling you. And we say that kind of with the big smile, but it's true. It's when you're rifle hunting, that's kind of the truth. Yeah. I mean, if you want to be proficient and efficient, and get it done a lot, if yeah. you make a point to never get inside of 300, you're going to kill more deer. I would agree. Um, obviously, the bow hunters are going 300 yards. Yeah. I'm trying to get to 30 yards. Right. But if you're trying to kill them, and, and we've done it long enough, you know, it ain't easy with a rifle at 400 or 500 yards. No. Those little suckers. They're a small target. Yeah, they're a small target. But even that, just just getting in tight and without them hearing you, right. seeing you, smelling you, they're, they're tough little sucker yeah. to hunt. Yeah. Um, our buddy would always say there's a, there's a lot of open air around a coos deer. Oh man. I, <laughs> I've, I've definitely had my share of that where yeah. they, you know, yeah. The bigger the antlers to it, it seems like the more open air is around their body. Yeah. So let's talk about, the, I mean, a top from the top of their back to the bottom of their belly. I mean, you're talking like 15, 16 inches. Yeah, I mean, it's re- when you get them on the ground, it's yeah. ridiculous how small they actually mm-hmm. are. And that, I mean, that's a challenge. So it's hard when we try to keep our hunters outside of 300. They're like, well, if we sneak up over that point, we'll only be 100 yards. I'm like, yeah. And you could probably shoot them a lot better from 100 yards. But nine times out of 10, that deer's not going to let us get to 100 right. yards. Right. He's going to spook, mm-hmm. he's going to hear something. You know, you're going to clank your tripod legs together. You're going to cough. Yep. And while we're talking about that, I think you, I mean, we could go on and on and on, but that brings up a whole nother point. We've seen everything under the sun and we've made the mistakes as well. But guys, when you're making a stock on a coos deer and you're getting into what I call the money zone into the area, like it's go time, you guys, you can't. You can't be clanking tripod legs. You can't be squeezing water bottles. You can't be coughing. You can't be sneezing. Yeah. I mean, if you've got a cold or whatever, you've got to stuff Kleenex up your nose. You've got to cough into your shirt. You've got to do whatever it takes to not make any noise. And, I agree. And the dang tr- clanking the tripod legs together or or opening the tripod and the leg goes stink. Yep. It's got guys. It's got to, it. It can't happen. Yeah, and I mean this. This country's it's big country, but it's also pretty open, and it it can be brushy too. So it's noisy, and I mean there's just a lot of things that can go wrong when you start trying to get close. Tight. Yeah, 
we call 300 tight. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'd rather sit at 400 than right. 300. Uh, fun stuff. So we go to that last night, and we're trying to listen for Hunter and, and um, Jared and Lee and Mike, his dad, and the, the crew talking about Jared. And they're saying it's a pretty good buck, nice clean buck. And meanwhile, we're, we're trying to get Bill a buck on the last night, and um, we get Bill set up on a buck. Hunter had spotted some bucks coming over the ridge when they were, he was kind of glassing around when everybody was watching the buck bedded. And he's like, I got some bucks over here. We pull up there and get out and kind of look over and Dar spots these bucks. And Bill's like, you know, I'd like to try and shoot that deer from here. I've got a 3378 and you know, I'm, I'm going to, if Bill was here, he'd probably tell a different story, but we're (laughs) like, yeah, you know, how far you've been practicing and this, that, and the other. And he's like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good shot at long range. And so we attempted the Colburn and Scott outfitters, uh, record of, of distance had a perfect hillside to do it quite open. We knew he was going to get a pretty good right. broadside shot. Um, and we got everything set and we did all the calculations and, um, built the rest and it was kind of a different different uh pace there because we were far enough away that you know we didn't have to be whispering we were building a rest and i mean quite honestly talking to each other uh ranging stuff just i mean it was actually pretty fun it was fun because i'd really never been in that situation where you could actually almost talk like if it would have been a big, big deer, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah, it, and, it, and that's this was that's, just like a you know ninety five, ninety inch yeah. type buck. So it was like you know, and that's part of I think what made it fun is there was no pressure. Bill could care less. He just he, wanted to try. He a was long laughing shot and and, and, yeah. and just like let's just try it. Right. And so make a long story short, the nice thing was the hill was pretty open. It was a kind of an ocotillo, kind of a yellow grass, but pretty open. We had quite a bit of 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 there was a canyon between us and the deer and um shooting that big 3378 and needless to say he cracked off a handful of shots at the deer and it kind of got to where the deer didn't even know what was going on he would be back to feeding and yeah you know um didn't hit him but ended up pushing him over the over the ridge kind of off to the east he, I think he finally just got tired of it and went over the, the ridge. Yeah, he could obviously hear the big gun going off, but I don't think they were it just... The first two shots, actually, I thought were really, really close, right over his back. Right, they were. Right over his and back. And we did have a, you know, off and on wind that was probably five or five to six, ten. seven miles an hour, which when you're shooting that far, I think that's the hardest thing to gauge is the wind. You know, the one thing I do like about that 3378 and those big caliber guns is, you know, he was shooting a 180 grain bullet. Mm-hmm. You hit a coos deer at any range with that bullet, yeah. it's in trouble. There's a lot of energy behind that. There's a that. lot yeah. of energy. And, you know, I, I wouldn't be shooting that distance with my 257 or, sure. you know, some of those smaller calibers. But the one thing about shooting those big guns yeah. and those you know, 180 grain up to, you know, like a 220 grain, mm-hmm. 200 grain. When it hits them, it's yeah. packing a punch. Yeah, definitely. 
Anyway, those deer spook off over to the east, so we go back to the ranger, pack up, kind of all laughing, and we're still waiting to hear the report from Hunter and, and Jared. So we go peeling around the mountain, and the idea was to leave me, just drop me off, and you guys were going to go on up and try and get a little different angle in there on the north side of the slope. Go look for some new bucks. Or, yeah, go yeah. look for some new blood, figuring, well, we spooked those, and drop me off and you guys take off them. I look up there with the new 25s and I'm just like, hmm, there's the smaller buck that was with them bedded. Yeah. And he'd only gone, what, 100 yards? Yeah, they just crested yeah. over the top of the hill. Um, almost like the noise was annoying them. So they yeah. just got out of there. And so now I've got the two bucks bedded again. So you come back with Bill. I show you where they're at. You guys make stock up there. But you got to a point where you couldn't go any further. You were, you know, you you couldn't yeah, get we, any closer. Yeah, we got to a, a, a hill that was, you know, there was nothing in between us and the deer. I mean, to shoot, nowhere to shoot from. It was just too low and nondescript flat. I mean, where we wouldn't get a rest. And so, and it was the light, you know, it was starting to get dark. So it was like, okay, you know, you need to shoot from here or pack it up. Yeah. We're, we're not going to get any closer. And. Dar, you've done a lot of long-range shooting. Um, you know, obviously others have done a lot more than sure. you have, but you've done a lot of sure. long-range shooting. You do all your own reloading, and you're into it. Definitely. Talk a little bit about setting up in coos deer hunting situations with the backpack and what you're trying to do to get the client's gun stable and and you know, how, where do you sit as a guide? And I think people can take this away if they're helping their buddies, their friends, kind of like from the start to finish, what, what are you trying to accomplish in the whole grand scheme of things with the gun, with the person, with the setup, with your binos, you know, how's it all work? Well, a, a few things I would say is, first of all, you got to know your ballistics and either have, have bars in your scope or a turret or something, it, you know, the Kentucky windage thing, it's, you get past three, 400 yards and that just slim to none chances wise. Um, so you got to know your loads. You got to know what your bullet drop is and, and how to uh, compensate for that. Um, the second thing is a, a friend of ours, Dave Springston, that taught me kind of how to shoot when I was going to college. He He's was a highway patrol sniper, right? Yeah. He, did a bunch of stuff with the sniper team and stuff. And he always told me the lower you can get to the ground, the better when you're shooting. So, you know, get your center of gravity low to the ground. Um, and I, I think having a bipod on the front of the gun that swivels that you can, you know, put your bipod down and then put your backpack supporting the, the back end of the gun and yourself and your arms when you, when you're shooting is, is pretty important. So, Typically, I get my stuff out of my pack when we're walking up to a place we're going to shoot from. I have my binoculars. Anything I'm going to need, I have out. And then my jacket, my pack, my butt pad, that sort of stuff, usually I have out as well. Set my pack down, get their gun kind of set up for them. Do you lay the pack on the... The fabric and like the straps, the straps up or the straps and the fabric, you know, the pockets and stuff up. I typically put the padding of, of the, the bot the, that goes on your back up. Okay. For me, that's so, how so I like the, it. The, the belt, the waist belt and the, and the shoulder straps are facing up. Correct. So in other words, if, if, if you're setting up on a cooster that's bedded 
and your lunch is in your pack and your water's in your pack. I mean, do you kind of get, get all a that few out. of that stuff out so that you don't yep. have to be, once you get the guns yep. set? Because I, to... I know we might be there all day. You know, it could be hours. So, yeah, I try and get all the stuff I need out and then, then build them a rest that way. And I, I like the pack facing that way because there's typically like your lumbar pad is pretty big. So I actually like to lay almost on the shoulder straps with the butt of the gun on that lumbar of the pack and, you know, put jackets under there to where I like to get the front of the gun supported with the bipod and then the back of the gun supported with the backpack. So there's no teeter-totter. It's, you know, rock solid. That Kuyu pack that that we both use, that 7200, mm-hmm. it sets up pretty good to shoot off of. It does. It does. And it, and I found that with the if the pack's the other way around, so the, the pocket sides are up, you know, you might have things shifting back and forth in there, and it, there's not as much structure to it, I guess, rather than flipping it over. So that that's just my personal um, feeling on it. And then I try and get them set up to where they're not, they're not holding the gun at all. I mean, it's, it's rested, you know, it's supported in the front and the back. Um, and then, you know, we obviously range it, get their, their drop dialed in or whatever. And then, you know, start going off of, uh, you know, if the buck's bedded, start getting a common landmark that, you know, they know where to go to. So we're on the same page you know, go to Are that you typically set tree. behind or right just to the side of the hunter? I'm usually slightly behind and right to the side, but close enough to where I can be in constant communication and, and help them. I mean, I, a lot of times I'll, you know, crank the scope down for them or crank it up for them. When, when, once they find the buck, I'll turn their scope up for them. Or, so we're, I'm right there with them pretty close. So we're constant communication. How important is having landmarks... Uh, to find the deer in the scope, but also I know you and I have done this enough together. We like to have landmarks outside of that. So if things go wrong or if the deer gets up and starts feeding in one direction or another, you have common points that you're like, remember the yucca on the left side, remember the, the big rock above him, the white rock to the right of him where you kind of have four corners yep. mapped out. How important is that? It's it's huge. And I think that's, you know, one thing you you learn as a guide, you can see the deer, whatever animal you're, you're trying to kill, all you want. If your hunter can't find them, it doesn't matter if you see them. So that's, I mean, when I was starting, it would be frustrating. You know, you'd find something and be trying to, there he is, he's up, you know, shoot him. And they have no idea. Right. So part of your job is to, you know, dial them in, get a common landmark and have points of reference that you guys, common points of interest that are uh, references that you can go to so that when the deer, he he might not see it, but he knows how to get his scope on the green tree. Okay. Go to the green tree. Okay. Go 20 yards to the right. Oh, I see him. Right. You know, that's, that's huge. Right. Yeah. I mean, and especially if, if he were to, he or she were to shoot once and it's mm-hmm. kind of chaotic. Right. They know that they've got a point above, below, to the left and to the right. And if the deer moves either way, that you can say, all right, yeah. remember the green tree to the yeah. left, go to the green tree. He's going to be walking right to it. He's headed to it. Just stay on the green tree. You should right. be able to see him now. Okay. I got him. I got him. Right. And also when the heat's on, you know, look at it as if you're in the heat of the moment, trying to kill the buck. 
and and try and go above and beyond extra communicating. Yeah. You know, people oftentimes say, man, Jay, you just talk, 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 talk the person through too much. And I'm like, well, I've done this so much that I know that sometimes you have to just say, he's coming to the green tree. He's coming. Are you on the green tree? Okay. Yes. Wait. Okay. He's coming. Don't even look for him. He's going to be there. Okay. Now he's there. Do you see him? Yes. And then. Yeah. You're way better off over communicating than under communicating. Right. And sure. I like to talk to someone in the gun and say, you know, are you comfortable? Okay. Are you, are you on him? Okay. Why don't you just take a break and just put your head down, stay in the gun, put your head down, but don't get your neck all kinked and just yeah. relax. Be you need to take a nap, you know, whatever. I'll wake you. Some of those things are huge. I recommend don't get out of the gun if you think that it's going to happen. Sure. And then if you if the hunter is going to get out of the gun, sometimes just to take a break, they need to take a leak or whatever, it's pretty important that they've got everything set so they can just shimmy right back in and get in that spot and in that same groove. Like so they don't have to totally put the jackets in again and totally build everything up, just kind of get it all set and then slide out of there if they have to, you know, sit up for a second. Right, and that that, that also goes back to having your common points of interest where – you know, they already know how to get their scope on that green tree so they can get up, take a break or whatever. But when they lay back down, they know right where to look. Um, right. And, you know, you got to we're looking through 15 power, you know, big, high quality two eye binoculars. And they're looking through a smaller diameter rifle scope, which, you know, it's smaller field of view. It's more challenging. So the more points of interest, you know, you have in common, the easier it's going to be for them to find it. Yeah, and I even like to, if, if you know you have a lot of time, um, I like to say, okay, let's go to this green tree to the left. Okay, you got it. Okay, let's go 40 yards to the right. Do you see the white rock? Yep, got it. And actually have them with their scope kind of a little yeah. bit, just get totally familiar with the way it looks in their scope. Mm -hmm. So that at any given time, if you say, okay, he's going up, he's going to the ponderosa pine or whatever. Obviously, not in coos deer situations a lot where ponderosa pine, but let's say, a, you know, a juniper tree or what sure. have you, you can say he's going to the juniper and they already know that they can, they, right. they can they know get where that, that is. scope right. right on that area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's all good stuff. So we find the deer, you guys make your stock, you get in there, it's getting dark, starting to get dark, and that buck gets up. Bill ends up shooting a couple times, hits the deer, but then the deer goes back down in the yellow grass. Yep. I'm watching from maybe a mile away. Yeah, maybe even a little farther. And I got him in the 25s, and but it's evident that you guys are going to have to go up there and maybe make a, make a shot. I can't tell because he's in the yellow grass and he's buried and you can't see him. Oh, and, and by the way, Bill's down to his last bullet. Oh, yeah. That's and never a good it, <laughs> I've been there before. It's his last bullet and he is it's not even the bullet for his gun. It's out of Lee's thirty three seventy eight. So, so we got a borrowed he last bullet. And it's a borrowed bullet. <laughs> so I'm like, oh great. We we need to you know we need to get point blank if if we need a second shot. We we can't afford to waste one. Yeah. So while all that's going on it's not too far from where Hunter and Jared and Lee and 
Mike and all of them are set up just up and over the, the kind of the big mountain. Yep. And they said as Bill was shooting, their deer wasn't doing anything. Right. And it's getting later and later, and they call me on the radio. They're like, the deer isn't getting up, and we're afraid that, like, he's not going to get up. And and I think they even said that the shooting, you know, albeit far away, farther away, just they their gut was telling them that this buck was just going to sit it out yeah, for the evening. Like, and, go, eh, yeah, I'm going to let it get dark right. before I poke my head right. up. And make a long story short, uh they they get set up on the deer and they make a shot in there and danged if they didn't kill him dead yeah and i think lee was i think lee was a, had a little higher elevation yeah was a little farther away and could could see they had a common interest i think didn't hunter see the antlers of the buck at yeah. one point when he stood up yeah so they they knew where he was but they couldn't really see him that well yeah, or couldn't at see all his body really good and Lee described where he was. They had some common points and basically lined him up to shoot through the brush to try and get him up. And he shot him and he killed, killed him, him. <laughs> <laughs> which never happens. That never works. And yeah. we ta- we even talked about that on the on the radio prior to. We're like, that's never works. Yeah, because it had come across the radio that we were going to shoot the rock above them to get the deer up. And Darren and I are like, absolutely not. Yeah. That's not. No, not an option. Reminds me of, of Jimmy, my cousin, which I could do a whole series of podcasts on my cousin. I love him to death. He's just a riot. Those that are listening that know him, he's uh, one of a kind. He, he, we had a buck in Mexico years and years ago that, uh, wouldn't get up, wouldn't get up. And he said he was going to do the old shoot the tree that the buck's under and, um, Let's just say that didn't work, but it did work for it you. It worked out it great for me. Spooked him over the side of the hill, and you shot him. Yep, that worked great. I think for it was me. like a hundred and eight-inch <laughs> buck. Yeah, it's good stuff. It's it's always so fun down there. So we went five for five, rallied in the last night. Um, I I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to this rut hunt coming up. Yeah, um, me too. To me, hunting coos deer in the rut is awesome. Yep, and I think that's part of the the beauty of hunting down at in Mexico is we go to these ranches, we close the gate behind us and it's just us. Yeah. We're hunting deer that don't get hunted that much. Not that they're stupid cause they're not at all, but it's not like a state land deer where, you know, you, they hear a shot and they're gone. Right. You know, it, it's just a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. I like everything about it. I like yep. the food and the people and the country. And you know, what's funny is the country of these coos deer in Mexico Arizona, New Mexico, no matter where they're at, they vary so much. I mean, everything from, you know, thick ponderosa pine forest to manzanita choked hillsides to, you know, yellow grass down, you know. And it's just, it's unspoiled down there. I mean, after, after Bill, Bill shot his buck, it got dark. We were up there. He and I were sitting on the hillside. Uh, The cowboy was bringing a horse up to, to, to grab the buck for us. And he and I were just sitting there in the dark and, you know, we're looking out to the east and, and I remember him and I talking just, we didn't have our headlamps on or anything. And, you know, we're looking east across this huge valley and there's a big, huge mountain range to the east of the the ranch we were hunting. And, 
he couldn't see one light, not one light from where we were sitting. And it was just like, wow. Yeah. I mean, it's awesome. how many places have you been where you look around and you don't see a light? Yeah. Nowhere. No, you're up on a high point. Yeah. And, you and can't it's just see like anything. unspoiled. Yeah. I, mean, that, I, I love it down there. Um, we're headed down in a few days. Uh, get down there around the 15th and, uh, we're going to hunt. One thing I think that's different about our hunts is we do seven full day hunts. Mm -hmm. We usually do a travel day on the front end and a travel day on the back end. And And then seven days of actual hunting. Seven days of actual hunting. So a lot of times we cross the border early on that first day, which most ranches we go to, we can get to the, to the ranches, get all set up by about noon or midday, maybe a little after. And it usually gives us a half a day on the front end sure. to go scout, to go hunt, to yep. go glass around, get a feel, get everybody, you know, acclimated. And, um, you know, we, we normally do five hunters at a time and that seven days, seven and a half days just is nice. I, I feel like sure. it gives good, usual ample time for everybody to get a nice buck. Well, and, and like we talked about. When we were doing the last podcast, I, I know I don't know if we did it on the podcast or not, but I mean, when you get a couple of days of rain like we had, it, it's a relief that we have seven days because it just it gives you more time to you know if you have wind or you have rain or factors you can't control, your hunt isn't totally ruined. You, you know, you still have an opportunity to to shoot a buck for sure. At, as we move into the rut dates. Um, what, what what we would call the rut dates coming up here. I think the deer, like you said, I remember on the radio, you're like, I can't wait till they lose their mind. <laughs> when they're rutting and they're thinking about, obviously, mating does, those bucks, they sometimes do some of the craziest things that you would see, say are just dumb. Why did that deer do that? They just lose their mind sometimes. Yep. And come right out in the wide open, and they're just sometimes an animal that's normally not visible at all, they become completely visible. Um, Not in all cases. I mean, I've had full-blown rut, and it's still hard to kill a deer. Sure. Well, Uh, and it just, the the rut brings out different challenges for for hunting them. I mean, it's a, you know, yes, they might be more visible, but... Now they're moving too much. They get harder to kill, too, because they're not sitting in one spot. They're moving. Yeah. So we go from them not moving at all and you're not seeing them, or having a very small window of seeing them to now they're running around the whole entire mountain. Sure. And they're just chasing does and oop, they're gone. And three minutes later, boom, here they come again, chasing the same doe all over the world. Running. I mean running them. Yeah, that that study, if I remember right, that was done in I want to say thirty four A Ockenfels Richard yeah. Ockenfels. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I, if, just going back on what I remember, it seems like pre prior to the rut, not during the rut, those bucks would be have an eight hundred yard core range within Home like range, their water yeah. source. Yeah. And then the rut hits and it's miles, miles, two, yeah. three miles. Yeah, or more. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that's a prime example of a December versus a January. I mean, I I can think of a lot of bucks that we've seen on that walk that there they are and there they go yeah i mean sometimes you gotta when they're rutting you gotta kill them when you see them yeah sometimes you can come back the next day and they're right in there chasing those same does but they could be i mean 
if you remember that buck um, on I'm trying to think that buck on Daniel's place and I had seen it before you guys got there. Yep. That Justin killed, right? Justin killed where I saw him rutting does till when you spotted him easily a couple miles easily. Yeah. And that was overnight overnight and in a couple miles away. Right. And you're like, I think I got that stinking buck you're looking for. Yeah. And he, you know, that was a deal where you had him at, you had seen him in the morning and thought he went and bedded. We got there at like one o'clock, went out to go. I mean, went up and met you. Yeah, I was already at the ranch. Yeah. Right. And you were still in the area. uh, If I remember right. And we got in there and looked for him that evening, didn't find him. So we kind of spread the net out the next morning. And like you said, I I just got lucky and picked him up, you know, a couple canyons away um, by himself. So, yeah. I mean, and he was with those and running hard the day before. The day before. Yeah. I mean, like, I was sure he was going to be right there on yeah. that hill. So it, and there was plenty of deer right there, With too. the rut, you never know. Yeah. I mean, y- you... Usually, if you see him, you you better get in and get him killed. I would agree. Um, you don't have that luxury of waiting like you would in October, yeah, November, December. So it's always kind of a double-edged sword, you know, hunting in November, December here in the States or hunting, you know, November, December down in Mexico. If you find a big deer, he's likely that he's going to be right there sure. on that ridge the whole time. And you can go see him virtually every day, if not every other day. And if you don't see him, he's probably bedded and you just can't see him. Right. Whereas the rut, it's anybody's guess. I mean, you you can see one buck one day and he's gone and you never see him again the entire time. Or you see him on a completely different hillside on the ranch. Yeah. And talk about the the date, I mean, the rut times in, in Mexico versus the U.S. Um, That's I mean, a good and it, point. And it varies, you know, what part of Mexico too. Yeah, I mean, what we found over the years, I think this is my 18th season, and I think it's probably your 17th Mm -hmm. season um, in a row going down there. And one thing we notice is that the rut is usually a week to 10 days, maybe two weeks behind what we're hearing here in the States. And, you know, even within Arizona, you've got your central Arizona units, um, you've got your southern Arizona units, typically the deer in central Arizona are going to rut sooner. And then the further south you go, they're going to rut later. And then as you go further south into Mexico, in northern Mexico, they're going to rut. And then you get all the way down by Hermosillo, they're not even, the coos deer are not even rutting until the first two weeks of February. February. Right. So. And if I remember, you killed your biggest buck, wasn't it right in the first yeah, part of February? Yeah, it was the first week of February yeah. down there on a flats ranch. And so. You got to know that when you're going to Mexico, depending on where you're hunting, you need to figure out if it's a mountain ranch or a desert ranch. You need to figure out where it is kind of um, geographically as far as how far north, how far south. And what we found on mountain ranches, kind of in what I would call northern Sonora, which anywhere from the border to say, you know, three hours south, mm-hmm. um, usually about anywhere from the 12th. 12th, 13th, 14th, yeah, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, you can pretty much bet on rut 
we've gone on the eighth a bunch and we've had sometimes when it's real cold weather and those deer are moving around and you know acting ruddy it seems like the 15th through the 30th normally historically is your most solid consistent hard charging rut time uh and then obviously as you get down by hermosillo your coos deer are more in the last two or the first two weeks of February and even into mid-February. And most of the seasons end around the 12th of 8th to the 12th of February. Mm-hmm. And down there, they're running on into mid-February. Whereas the mule deer in Sonora typically are going to rut a little bit ahead of the coos deer. Yeah. So prime rut in, say, northern Sonora for the mule deer is going to be anywhere from, say, January 1st to the to the 10th, mm-hmm. you know, you know, pretty prime dates. And then as you go further down, you know, you get into that, you know, 12th, 13th, 14th on into like January 25th. Yeah. Seems like much after that, the mule deer are kind of shut down. Yeah, I would agree. I'm excited about this new property that we're going to hunt. Um, it's, it's a lower density place. Mm-hmm. But I think the the quality of deer, I will be very, very shocked if we don't find a couple slobbers. And that's my hope. Maybe it's me being optimistic. But we had so many ranches to choose from after last spring, you know, as to where we were going to take our full, you know, fully outfitted hunters. And this was the the place that we decided we need to be hunting this in the rut. Uh, because of the low density, yep. uh, a little more deserty terrain, um, but just high hopes. And, you know, that's part of being a cooster hunter. And that's why forward. we always go. It's the anticipation of, you know, yeah, finding the next big one. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so it should, it should be interesting to see how it shakes out. Should be interesting to see how, you know, the, the full moon being on January 12th, you know, going down 15th, 16th, how that plays into are the deer rutting. All the reports we're getting are little bucks are kind of with the does sporadically. A, a mature buck will be in there chasing. And we've hunted enough between that 7th and 15th to know that it's real sporadic. They've yep. had warm weather. We've got some fronts and stuff coming in, so some rain. I think everything is going to change. Got uh, some wind, too, wind. Which- never good you know one thing i will say though once they're full-on rutting it seems like once they get going there's nothing really that can stop them other than heat yeah i've seen the heat shut them down and shut them off and make them pretty lethargic we've had cold windy though that shuts them down too yeah i i don't think they're as finicky when it's cold and windy um on the rut not saying it, it doesn't but at some point, even if it's midday, they're going to get up and chase yeah. those around. So I guess you guys will have to tune in. We're going to try and do some live podcasts down there from Mexico. And um, not li- live when we're there. And then I'll have to um, you know, make them air when we get back. But you'll have to tune in and see how we do. I'm excited. We got a, a bunch of uh, DIY guys going down to a bunch of different ranches as well. Mm-hmm. And um high hopes man yeah should be able to put a bunch of good bucks on the ground yeah it'll be good and then come back and the arizona elk and antelope applications are due and start all over again start all over again february 14th is the actual deadline this year which is a tuesday it's uh 7 p.m i believe it's a tuesday the 14th it is yep 
It's always and, a Tuesday. Uh, you know, seems like pretty decent weather, decent moisture shaping up. Uh, late dates for an elk hunt starting on the 15th. Uh, you know, dark moon on the 20th. Mm-hmm. Could be an interesting archery elk season. For sure. So, yeah, I guess the next time these guys will hear us, we'll be uh, just getting back from Mexico. And, oh, I wanted to talk about those 25s real fast. Yeah. A friend of mine, Jeremy Googlemeyer, who lives in Texas, he, he's an outfitter in Kansas, Texas, and New Mexico. He does unbelievable antelope hunts, mule deer hunts, elk hunts. Um, and we actually did some turkey hunts with him last year. And you whitetail hunted with him too. Yeah, right? yeah, years ago. This buck right here above me, um, I shot with Jeremy in Kansas. He was telling me that he had switched to the 25 power, 25 by 50, 65 millimeter twin Swarovski spotting scopes, the STSs. And I was like, really? How do you like those? He's like, oh, I love them. I really like them. And so it piqued my interest. And, you know, you and I have had COAs. We've each had a set of COAs. When Koa, when they first came out, I want to say we got like the first or second pair that outdoorsmen. It was oh nine, I think, is like when we had them. Like I told 08, Floyd, 09. I, yeah. I'm like, I want a pair right away. We've been using them ever since. But I mean, honestly, at you know, twelve and a half, thirteen pounds for the optics. You know, the tripod that they require is a twelve pound tripod. They're an angled eyepiece that you know you have to have a stool. And guys say, oh, you don't have to have a stool. Well, to glass any long periods of time, because of the angle, you have to be sitting up in order to look down into the binos. Yep. And optically, the Koa Highlanders are phenomenal. Oh, Edge-to-edge yeah. clarity, really clear. But the reality is, and you know, I'll be 44 next month, I'm probably in as good a shape as I've been in in a long, long time. But really, that doesn't have anything to do with it. They're just heavy. I mean, you're at 27 to 30 pounds before you even start putting your sandwich in your backpack right. or carrying any water or your knife or anything else. Yeah. Um, to hear Jeremy say that he really liked those 25s, I, you know, I'm always on the lookout as you are for the best yeah. optics out there. I mean, we, we, we will use whatever we think is best. And so he told me where he got the adapter and he got the adapter from Wells in or manufacturing, um, Benny, Benny Wells's dad mm-hmm. uh, makes these adapters and in uh, Prescott, Arizona. And so, anyway, you contacted Benny for me and said, you know, do you have Jay's interested? Do you have an adapter? I think he said he had one left. Yeah, and, and Benny had been. I, I shoot archery league with him. Um, I have in the last few years, and he'd been telling me he liked know, him. he liked him a lot. And they had him and uh, Jason Geese, yeah, yeah, had switched to those, and so. I, I knew it wouldn't be long. Yeah, so I called Cody up, and he's like, yeah, I can get these. I can. I think he said he didn't have them that day, but he said, I can get them here, and I can get the eyepieces. So I went up and met Benny. I, he let me look through his because yeah. I wanted to at least look them because my eyes are close together. Right. Like on the 15 Swarrows, I actually have to stagger the eye cups, the, the, the strap that holds the, the – the um, objective eye cups, I have to actually stagger those to squeeze them together tight enough. So I was, I just want to make sure that my eyes being close together that I could see through them. And I glassed for five minutes through his and they looked great. His eye cups were on his 25s and they, I, they still were something I'm like, yeah, I like, I, I want to try these. So anyway, make a long story short, I buy the twin spotters from Cody and get the adapter and, 
and um, get it all set up. And we went to Mexico and boom, I took them right away and just fell in love with them. But what I did is I took the eye cups off because Jeremy had said, I want to say that he maybe tried them or someone that he knew had tried taking the eye cups. So I took mine off immediately and my field of view just opened up and it was and like... you're not talking the rubber eye cups. You're talking you unscrewed I the eyepiece, the just eyepiece like on, cover. Yeah, the eyepiece covers just yep. like, you know, like on any Swarovski optic, you can actually unscrew the whole eye, like the whole it's eyepiece. It's like the housing around the eyepiece. Yeah. Yep. And so basically you're left with just the, the, the metal the glass and the, the glass. Yeah. So, I mean, if you drop them or something, you're going to be hosed. You don't have any protection. But I put my eyes right up against it. And I'm going to test it out this week. But I'm telling you, I think the field of view is wider than the 15s. Someone may mathematically say it's not possible. But I would tell you my field of view by taking the the cups off, it's unbelievable. Well, and just to clarify, too, you're using the 25 by 50 wide angle lens in 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 those spotting scopes. Right. And so I used them for the whole week in Mexico and packed them, and I loved them. Um, So I'm anxious. You know, I've only lasted them seven days. I'm anxious to take them back down to Mexico and use them. Uh, And you're glassing with them most of the time on the lowest power, the 25 power. Yeah, and that's the thing. Good point. So they're on 25 power, and you can glass really well when they're on 25 power and look really good now if you see a buck you can what what jeremy told me to do is crank one eye to 50 and look at it which i'm right eye dominant so usually my right eye i crank it to 50 and look at them in the right lighting situations you can crank both the 50 but you have to get them all the way to 50 so in other words anything in between like 30 35 40 45 you have to get each eye perfectly so like they have to be the same as what you're saying. You yeah. can't have one on 36 and one on 35. Or yeah, it's real yeah. finicky. So you either just need to do one eye, see what, see, you know, if you need to really zoom in, go to 50 power, zoom in, and then, you know, zoom back out. What I've found is the X on 40, where it says 40X, that if I can line up the dot with the X, and guys that own Swarovski kind of know what I'm talking about, I can actually glass pretty good at 40 power. And so I get them set just right. I focus each eye. And then when the light's good, light's at my back, I can actually glass with 40 power, and they're pretty dang sweet. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to so tell you. So you're using your normal tripod also, your, your that's slick. That's one of the, the benefits that yeah. I thought was so huge in that the Koas, yeah, they're you know 12 or 13. They're, I think they're 12 and a half pounds, to be honest with you. But the tripod alone was that Manfrotto 190XXV or something. And I know that Manfrotto makes a, a little bit lighter, and I know that like Cali May makes a, a little bit lighter. But still, because the binocular is so heavy, you have to have a heavy tripod right. to stabilize. Right. Well, I can just use my regular tripod that I use with my 15s or my 10s or whatever, and that's a huge benefit for me. Plus, I can sit on my butt and glass just like I glass with my 15s with the 25s, and I don't have to carry a stool. So right. I think we figured it the other day. It was like a, you know, it's a, it's, it's my tripod's like three and a half pounds. My, uh, the 25s are seven and a half pounds. So I'm like at 10 pounds. But just to, to even back that up where the co's are di- at 30 differently 
I would say I carry the STS-80. Uh, I think it's a 20 to 60 spotting scope. Right, eyepiece. With the 15s, and it was... One I think pound. It was one pound less doing that versus you carrying the twin spotting scopes um, with without 15. So essentially, you're by going to that, you're gain, you're carrying a pound more, but you're, you've got a 25 power binocular, and you're not having to carry an extra spotting scope. Right. So to me, it's almost worth. I mean, a pound isn't that much. Well, because you're yeah. using the same tripod, so it's using the same tripod, and you know. For me, glassing for coos deer specifically, yeah, having 25 power is huge in my mind. The more power, the better. And that's what I've always liked about glassing with the koas for coos deer is that 32 power. I was always, we, both of our sets of koas, mm-hmm. we both have them, are 32 power fixed. And they're phenomenal. Oh, yeah. But there's only a few guys I know that pack those suckers all around and their backs are stronger than mine. I mean... But even just the bulk, I mean, they're big and bulky, and the yeah, tripod's you shoot a deer, bulky, and no. You kill a deer, happening. you have to take your binos back or leave them and come back and make two trips, unless you're just an absolute beast, which there's guys out there that are, but I'm not that tough. So, yeah. I, I, I'm, you know, you I'm You say just for coos deer, too, but, I mean, most, I, I personally think most Western hunting stuff we do, I mean, it, at the weight they are, I think you'd take them. I really do. Yeah, I mean, I I like the, these. I mean, suckers the strip sure. mule deer. I mean, there's yeah. I think Colorado. The strip, there's a lot awesome. of places that you would use them. Yeah, and I'm not going to say that the, you know, the edge to edge, you know, that they're as, like you even look through them today, and you need them to be just. You need to actually trim a little rubber because your eyes are even closer than mine. But yeah, and like on my 15s, I can't have the eye cups. Yeah, on you the have front. to take the eye cups totally off. And what did we come up with yesterday? We actually came up with a measurement that. That your eyes were three. Well, it was it, it the was center a, of the glass. The center of the glass. I needed them to be about an eighth or two eighths of an inch closer together. Is what we right. We came and up I want to say that they were three and three eighths center to center, and you need them to be three and an eighth or three and two eighths. I, yeah, I want to say it was less than that, though. I think that was outside edge to outside edge. Uh, I I don't have it written down here, but. I need them a little bit closer together. I could make them work with your setup, but it, if I could get them a little closer together, it would it would probably be that much better for me. Yeah. So that'll be interesting to see. Anyway, um, I'll report back in on my findings on these 25s. Right now I'm really high on them. And, um, yeah, stoked. I, I, You know, I can see them easily replacing my Koas. I could see me. I love the Koas, but I could see me selling the Koas someday just because I just don't know that I need them. Um, yeah, I, I hate agree. to sell any of my binoculars, but yesterday, speaking of that, I've had 12 power Swarovskis that I got brand new, and I love them. When I've ever taken them out and glassed with them, they're phenomenal. 12 by 50 ELs. But it seems like, you know, the new 15s. Once the new 15s came out, that extra three power, I like the extra three power for coos deer, desert bighorns, yeah. mule deer. I'll just take the extra power. So the 12s never, I mean, they literally look brand new and they've hardly ever been used. Like I've taken them out like a couple days and loved them, but 
it just, you're not gaining anything. So I put them yeah. on Instagram yesterday on my feed, and you know, within 45 minutes, I think I had four different people that said I'll take them, and I was like, whoa. But I felt like I was selling my child. I don't have any kids, but it, it <laughs> felt like I was selling a child off. And I still feel guilty for it. I'm still waiting for the check to come in the mail, and then we'll I'll send them to them. But it's like I, I feel like I've done something wrong. Yeah. I, well, I think and that, that goes back to if you buy good optics, I mean, you don't get rid of them. And I, I've had a, I bought my first pair, 1042 SLC Swarovskis. Uh, I believe it was 1994. I graduated high school. I saved up and I went down and bought them from Floyd. Paid cash. I want to say it was like 900 bucks or 950. And they went through a lot. I gave him. <laughs> <laughs> my brother graduated college. I gave them to him, and he still has them. Yeah. So. And that's the I thing mean, too. Like I've had several sets of tens, fifteens. When you buy, you know, I. I hate to bag on what I call the medium tier companies, but if you buy high quality stuff when it comes to optics, yeah, you get your money's worth. You can have them for ten or fifteen yeah. years, and they perform phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. and that—that's—I'm not saying the the older SLCs are, you know, every bit as good as the new ones because they're not, but right. they still function great, and they're still better than a lot of the stuff out there. I would say that those. If, you know those those binoculars are still better than some of the mid tier yeah. companies that they're even their best line. Yeah, and I and I got the new 15s a couple years ago, Swarovskis, and I still have my older pair that my boys are using. And I'm I'm like you, I would have a hard time selling them, mm-hmm. other than to sell them and maybe get an, another pair of the new 15s. But it's just like I, you know, yeah. they're bought and paid for. Why why get rid of them? Yeah, for sure. Right on, buddy. Well, uh, looking forward to going down to Mexico. And I guess, guys, I want to thank you guys for listening. Uh, I want to thank my four sponsors, uh, Go Hunt Insider. Remember, guys, that the Insider, Go Hunt Insider, has released their Arizona draw odds. And it's unlike any of the other companies out there. These are the actual draw odds for the new uh, Arizona. Uh, with the change last year with Arizona doing the 5 and the 15% and only taking 5% of the, the non-residents uh, out of that, that max pool, um, the odds have really gotten uh, skewed. So GoHunt.com Insider has released those odds. All you have to do is be a member. Uh, you also get uh, inserted in there for the great hunt giveaways, uh, great gear, and uh, you get a $50 Kuyu gift card if you use the J. Scott promo code. And they've done a phenomenal job. They're also uh, got, uh, they're breaking down all the New Mexico uh, non-resident uh, numbers. So that's coming here in application season. Some great stuff uh, looking at New Mexico draw odds. I uh, also want to thank Phonescope. I've used the J. Scott promo code, uh, J. Scott 16 promo code at Phonescope. Uh, PhoneScope makes uh, the the best uh, digiscoping adapters, adapting uh, phones to your to your binos or your spotting scopes. Uh, real game calls we've talked about a lot during elk season. Uh, the elk reel. Uh, if you use the J Scott promo code, you get a twenty percent discount there. Uh, and uh, obviously the Outdoorsman's, uh, the Optics Authority, Cody Nelson and his group down there at the Outdoorsman's in Phoenix. 
Uh, 1-800-291-8065. You can also go to outdoorsmans.com. If you use the J. Scott promo code, you get 10% discount. I want to thank those four sponsors like I do every podcast. And it's so important to me that you guys, the listeners, support them. And I get emails every day from you guys saying that, uh, you know, you value this podcast and you also value my sponsors who step up to pay me to put this podcast out. Without you guys, your loyal support, and without them uh, from their support, uh, this podcast wouldn't be possible. Uh, guys, if you want to get a hold of Dar or I, you can follow along on Instagram at J. Scott Outdoors. Dar Colburn is D-A-R-R Colburn, C-O-L-B-U-R-N. Uh, you can email me at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. Uh, you can email Dar at darcolburn at aol.com. You can also go, if you're interested in a Mexico coos deer hunt or any other hunt, you can go to colburnandscottoutfitters.com. Uh, guys, take care. Thanks for the support.